Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 115, The Buddha Didn't Have a Credit Card. Insight meditation teacher Diana Winston joins us to discuss the powerful yet often frustrating relationship between the Buddhist teachings on liberation and the financial reality of dealing with money. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com donate. Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vince Horn. I'm here today with a special guest. She has previously been on the show, and so we're really grateful to have her back. This is Diana Winston. Thank you, Diana, for joining us. I'm happy to be here. And Diana is the Director of Mindfulness Education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center, and she's also a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, so she teaches meditation there. So we're glad to have her back, and today we wanted to discuss a topic that's of interest to her, which is Buddhism and money. And oftentimes these two areas seem somewhat incompatible. That seems to be the general feeling about them. But obviously that would be too simple, that they're simply incompatible. So we wanted to talk a little bit today about how do Buddhism and money or spirituality and money interface? How do they intersect? Uh, What's the economics of Dharma look like in terms of both being a practitioner, being a teacher, Dharmic institutions, being consumers, living in a market economy, also being producers, entrepreneurs, all these kind of interesting roles that we take on both as spiritual beings and also beings that live in relationship to other beings and and have to find a way to interact and uh, live together. So (laughs) this is a really fascinating topic and I think I'll just kick it off by asking you, Diana, just a general question about why these two areas are seen often as incompatible. What do you you think that's about? There's no reason, really, that Buddhism and money should be incompatible, but I think what you see is a lot of people approaching it in that way. And this has been my observation, having been in Buddhist circles for 20 years, and especially in the Vipassana scene, I can't speak so much for some of the other Buddhist traditions. But what I've seen is a kind of um, removal from the area of money and economics, and because it's seen as something that is kind of not related to our practice. Mm. And what's so interesting about it is that we are dealing with money all the time. We're dealing with money every day. Probably a day doesn't go by, maybe one one day a week, where you don't actually have contact with money. So you would think that money would be a really important topic for teachers to talk about, for there to be teachings about, for it to be really in the consciousness of people in the Buddhist communities. But What I see instead is some kind of separation from it, and I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think that there's some kinds of historical separation that money is considered, it's considered sort of dirty. Like, there are certain topics in Buddhism that are considered not not clean, and I'm just using this word a little bit loosely, but Mm -hmm. money, sexuality, women, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in sort of like the ancient Buddhist teachings, money, sexuality, women, those are kind of the main ones. And these are the things that we're not supposed to pay attention to, that they're they're considered impure or not virtuous. 
And this is coming out of this monastic tradition, which actually does need to, in some ways, separate from those things, from any of these realms that have to do with with worldly life. And so when you see Theravada Buddhism now in, in the United States, it's still separated, even though the majority of practitioners are, are, they are lay people. <laughs> They're not monks or nuns. And so it's like we've inherited this judgmental attitude towards money. And there's a sense that the holiest way to be is to be completely pure and separate from money like a monk or nun would live. So I think this poses some big problems. Interesting. What are some of those problems as you've seen it? Well, as I was saying, we we're all in contact with money all the time. Mm-hmm. And if so, nobody's giving teachings about it, if it's considered as separate from the spiritual realm, then it's going to be kind of like the wild, wild west out there in terms of, in terms of how people relate to money. So my sense is that if we can bring money into the fold and have it discussed in a way that is really practical and helpful, then I think it can make a big impact in the communities in general. One of the things about money is it's scary to people. It's confusing to people. I mean, just witness what's going on in this country right now. People are in chaos around money and with the massive amounts of foreclosures and people in debt, the credit card debt. You know, the Buddha basically, I don't know if you know this, but the Buddha had said that our earnings needed to be in excess of our spending. The Buddha actually said that. And we can talk a little bit about what the, some of the early teachings that the Buddha gave around money, because they're quite interesting, but they're pretty marginalized. And you don't hear, you don't go to a meditation retreat and hear what the Buddha taught about money. Of course not, because you're meditating. It's not really that relevant. The only thing you hear is that at the end of the retreat when people ask for dana. So basically, the only relationship to money is in the context of generosity, which, you know, is a beautiful teaching, but it's also problematic if that's the only way that it's being taught because we're, we're missing this huge aspect of our lives that we're dealing with every single day that is an area that, as I was saying, is a source of humongous amounts of suffering. What else did the Buddha teach it about money? Do you, do you recall any other of his yeah, teachings I mean, on it? There's, there's a lot. I mean, he, the, probably the most classic one that he taught is is from a sutta called the Digajana Sutta, which he talks about the conditions of welfare, and he asked, he was asked by a householder. So let me just preface this by saying so many of the teachings that we've inherited as Vipassana practitioners in the West are teachings that went to the monks. So we don't hear a lot of these householder teachings. And they're small. They're a small amount in relation to the rest of the canon. But in this particular sutta, he's asked what conditions lead to a householder's happiness. And the Buddha answers, persistent effort, and that means not being lazy. In other words, whatever work you do, don't be lazy, whether mm-hmm. it's, and then of course he uses a lot of agrarian examples, like when you're rearing cattle or farming or trading and so forth. And then he says the second one is watchfulness. And what he means by watchfulness is actually being careful about your property so that kings would not seize it, thieves would not steal it, and fire would not burn it. So you actually need to kind of protect your property. And then he, the third one he says is good friendship. And the fourth is, this is the one I was just talking about, balanced livelihood. He says, knowing his income and expenses, he leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly, knowing that thus his income will stand in excess of his expenses, but not as expenses in excess of his income. Hmm. In other words, I don't think the Buddha would have wanted people to have credit cards. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> if you interpret it in this way. 
And then he goes on to say there's things that can destroy your wealth, which include debauchery, drunkenness, gambling, and friendship, and intimacy with evildoers. So, you know, that's kind of self-evident. And then, of course, because it's one of the, generally, as these suttas do, it goes on to talk about ways that we can have spiritual progress so that what also contributes to his happiness is faith and virtue. And then, of course, charity, really, really important. One should be open-handed, delighting in generosity, attending to the needy, things like that. So that's one of the kind of classic sutras about what he says. And then there are other things where he talks about the importance of, you know, caring for your family and making sure that you provide for your children. Also provide for your slaves, he does say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) servants Mm -hmm. and assistants, with pleasure and satisfaction, warding off calamities. There's a lot about maintaining one's property and so forth in order to to be able to provide and be able to give generously. And that's some of the main teachings around mm, this stuff. Interesting. Yeah. And just listening to that, I'm, I'm thinking on the one hand, wow, this seems like really good common sense kind of advice. And then on the other hand, I'm thinking, wow, it sounds like those kind of teachings also need to be contemporary-rized. Exactly. <laughs> they, ma- they need to be made contemporary. So yeah. do you think that's part of what a Dharma teacher would need to do or in order to present these teachings, how does that translate, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important that we translate these and we update them, make them more modern. I don't know if it's the responsibility of Dharma teachers to do that. I mean, some Dharma teachers are really focused on what happens in intensive retreat. Sure, sure. In that case... It doesn't, these teachings aren't so relevant. For the teachers like myself and others who are out working with people who are kind of in day to day life, I think it's really important that we talk about this, that we think about what makes sense in light of this consumer culture, in light of, um, in light of being a Buddhist in contemporary times. How do we, I mean, we can take the Buddhist teachings, we can update and we can take the principles, we can update them. I mean, there are many ways of working with it, and I think it would be great. Stephanie Kaza wrote a book called, edited a book called Hooked, Buddhist Voices on Consumerism. It's really good. I recommend it. Nice. And I found it interesting that you said certain teachers, they're, they're mostly focused on, you know, what happens during intensive practice, intensive retreat. I mean, taking the three trainings as a model, ethics, concentration, and insight, it seems like the financial piece has mostly to do with the ethical domain, how we interact with others and in the world and stuff. And insight meditation teachers, I guess when I go to retreat anyway, I think, oh, these people have expertise. They seem to be ethical people, but they also have a lot of expertise in these particular areas related to meditative training. And so um, it is interesting, the question of who should be teaching teaching about money? Because I, I suspect even among really good Buddhist teachers that are fairly ethical people, doesn't mean necessarily they know much more about money than than the next person? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, let me say a couple things. One is, yes, I agree with you. The precepts are a great starting place for helping us think about money, mm. although they're pretty complicated. I'd like to talk about them in a moment, but let me say this. I do know that I've met a lot of Buddhists who are really, or maybe not a lot, but I've met Buddhists who practice the precepts Yet, when it comes to money, it's a place that they kind of fudge. Mm. For instance, people who will be pretty um, honest about their financial dealings, but they kind of fudge things when it comes to the IRS. Now, this is really common. Mm -hmm. And is it because 
these teachings, they don't seem applicable in that realm or they haven't thought about it or my guess is more like there's a lot of fear around money and that's what's driving people rather than being committed to a kind of rigorous honesty around it. Mm. The other thing is, so you're asking a question about what are people who teach meditation, like their, their relationship to money and I think yeah. that's a great question. Yeah. I just want to add one thing. There's people who meditate when they come to practice on retreat Mm. There's often a huge amount of suffering going on because of money situations, Mm -hmm. you know? So we might have a very strong and deep spiritual practice, but if our money life isn't together and we're practicing, that may be what comes up when you're meditating. So it's just another argument for kind of handling and dealing and relating to our money just because it impacts our retreat practice. Now, going back to what you're saying about the teachers, I have opinions and... I think that there are different developmental lines that people have. I think that there are some teachers who have such profound realizations and may not have certain areas of development. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And some people might argue that that's not okay. I think that it's just the way things are. And, And I learn from teachers with all levels of understanding. So I would, I wouldn't say every teacher needs to get their money stuff together, but I would say that, a, it could be a source of suffering for them that if they did sort out, it would be really helpful. And I know that's the case for me. <laughs> and B, uh, money can be a doorway into wisdom. So I think it's a great path to explore. So it, there's something beautiful, wonderful about it. So one of the reasons that it might be useful for teachers to explore their relationship to money is because when we're acting unconsciously around money, it sometimes comes up in really funny ways. It sometimes manifests in funny ways. And that, when I think about that, I think about just the way Buddhism is manifested in the West. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the kind of the story about, all right, when Buddhism left India and went to these different cultures, it took on the flavors of the cultures that it entered. So when it went to China, it took on aspects of Taoism and Confucianism and so forth. So when it came to the United States, it took on consumerism. Right, right. And so we see Buddha alarm clocks. And the, <laughs> in the last couple of years, there's been more Buddhist tchotchkes around than I have seen in, in the last 20 years. It's just, it's, just, it's just wild how much people love Buddhist merchandise. On some level, it's, is it inescapable? Like, this is a culture that has a devotion to consumerism in some way. And so, of course, Buddhism is going to take on some of these qualities. But it's important as a Dharma teacher to ask yourself, how much of that do I want to promote and support? And how much do I want to, what do I want to teach people about consumerism? I mean, should Buddhist should Buddhist teachers be teaching people to live more simply? Should they be teaching people to if they're going to be investors, for instance, to invest only in socially responsible investment funds? Should they be teaching people to donate, but not just donate to the monastery, but donate in all sorts of ways? Because as the Buddha was saying, don't, you know, charity is this big virtue for him. But usually when you go to a meditation retreat, you're taught about donation, but it's donate to us. I guess my point is just that there's so many teachings that can be given that can counteract consumerism, but it would involve a Dharma teacher prioritizing that, valuing it, and thinking that's important. And there's actually many, many teachers out there that teach in that way and Mm -hmm. make the kind of larger social political connections. Yeah. Do you think that Buddhist teachers 
that the model of being a recognized source of wisdom in terms of ethics, in terms of meditative training, do you think that is a model that, that is transferable to the West? In ter- are there other people that are more saintly in those areas that we should be looking to? Or is there something unique about the meditative training that teachers have done or that practitioners do that can transfer over to this realm of money and ethics? My experience is that the Buddhist approach to money, it's kind of limited in the sense that I haven't seen a great body of work around it. There's some books that have been written. There are some teachers that are into it, but mostly it's pretty limited. So I think we have to look outside of the Buddhist tradition because we're not going to find the answers in it. I think that one can do a lot of work to translate, just like we were talking about earlier, like taking that sutra that I read and updating yeah. it. The one thing I will say is that Buddhist practitioners cultivate a fearlessness to go into the areas of where they're suffering. And mm. if they're suffering around money, they can take that fearlessness and go in and bring in the knowledge of not self and not me and do the work around it. So I would say a Buddhist practitioner is a great candidate for um, mm-hmm. for really exploring money if, that's, if they're drawn to that because of the level of suffering and because of the tools that they may already have around mm. it. I'm wondering, uh, kind of to close up, if you could share a little bit of your history as a practitioner mm-hmm. with money. Sure. So, I got into the Dharma in my early 20s, and I was really into practicing and didn't have any interest in money. And it was interesting because I went to college in the 80s, and all of my friends were going off right out of school and either going on to graduate programs and getting big money jobs, doctors, lawyers, computer people. You know, it just that was the time. It was Ronald Reagan was president, right? Mm-hmm. And I went off and I traveled around Asia and I practiced and I didn't have anything to do with money for about 15 years. And, you know, I would make money. I'd waitress. I'd work in nonprofits for nothing. And... I found ways to make money to survive, but I wasn't interested in it. And not only was I not interested in it, I hated money. I thought Mm -hmm. money was horrible because I was so wed to this Buddhist ideology of money is impure, it's not spiritual, it's not virtuous, that if I were to be like really holy, I would abandon everything. I would renounce the world. And I also had very strong political views about this too. I thought I was angry at capitalism for the polarizations of the rich and the poor and the huge um, inequities in the system. So I was really, really opposed to money. But mostly the truth was I was really, really scared of money and really also very unconfident, very scared that I had no capacity to make money or understand money. And so about five years ago, I was starting to be a teacher, and I left the nonprofit where I'd been working, and I was suddenly going, oh, my God, how am I going to make money? I had no idea what I was going to do. I mean, I was living on Donna, but Donna was so irregular and and uncertain. And I had this really interesting moment where I was reading a book about money because I started to begin to educate myself. And there was this story in it where a woman had gone to India, she writes about this, or she'd gone to India to meet the son of a great philanthropist who had funded Gandhi's movement. Hmm. And I read this, and I did one of those, like, literally cartoon double takes, you know, where your head goes boing boing in two directions. I was like, what? 
And I thought, Gandhi's movement was funded? Are you kidding me? And to me, it just was outlandish. To me, this was the height of all of my spiritual and political views, completely uh, symbolized by Gandhi's movement. And I had no idea that money was involved. But of course money was involved, Mm -hmm. you know, when I began to think of it. I mean, how did they get a million people to go on a salt march? Or how did they get them? What did they do? Where'd they get those trains that people were in? You know, I mean, there was tons of money. And there's a famous saying that only then began to make sense to me, which was that it took millions of rupees to keep Gandhi in poverty. Hmm. And so when I saw that, I realized how locked in, how much identification I had around these views about money that were really not so healthy for me and that were preventing me from exploring money and getting more understanding and more freedom around money. And so that started me on really a several year, many year, you know, up until now journey about exploring my relationship to money. And what you find out, of course, is money is not about money. Money is about security and power and influence and love. And it's about, it's about all sorts of things. So it's mm-hmm. a doorway into understanding these things. And so I've spent a number of years through psychological work and spiritual work and um, practical work of really like learning to live in the world in a whole new way where I cared about money, where I put attention into money, where I thought about it. Um, that my life has transformed, and I'm so glad I did it. I can't even tell you there's so much relief because it's not scary. It's not a a black hole of I can't make money. I don't know what I'll do in the world, which was how I felt in the beginning. Now, Mm. there's a confidence and a joy, and there's a sense that money is so deeply connected to my spiritual path instead of it being something that I needed to disconnect from because it scared me. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.